This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. So we are going to turn now to another aspect, another uh, area in which diversity issues loom large, and that's Muslims in America, in which we will have the opportunity to ask ourselves how big is the American tent, and we'll also have the opportunity to see in high relief how a group can be racialized, to look at how race can be made, and how we can see that a group is made and marked not just as different, but as we watch it happen, it can, unless we take measures to the contrary, be made as other, as lesser in power, privilege, and, and status. And so this, this um, topic now couldn't come um, at a better time for us to look at the uh, uh, race in the making part of our agenda today. And so to introduce today's panel, I'd like to introduce Professor Robert Gregg. And Professor Robert Gregg is Emeritus in Religious Studies, and he currently serves as the director of the Abbasi program in Islamic Studies. And for this panel, you can see that we are um, missing one of our speakers. Um, she is approaching from the airport as we sit here, so there'll be a little bit of commotion as she, as she comes in, but um, you know, it's... Um, we, we, we can adjust in the diverse world. We have to learn how to do that. So we'll, we'll do that here today. So let me call to the um, mic, uh, Professor Greg. Thank you very much. I think it's going to be exciting to have one of the panel members walk in in the middle of the discussion. <laughs> and I look forward to that epiphany. I have not yet... I have not yet met Amina Wadud, uh, so I will greet her when she walks in. She is a scholar of Islam who is well known for her work in Quranic and gender studies. I believe she's on the faculty of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, uh, where she is active both in the religious studies department and in that university school of world studies. But at present, she is a visiting professor at Star King School of Ministry which is one of the graduate schools of theology in Berkeley, California's Graduate Theological Union. Among her publications are Quran and Woman, Rereading the Sacred Text from a Woman's Perspective, a 1999 volume, and last year's book, Inside the Gender Jihad, Women's Reform in Islam. Uh, so you now know something about her so you'll be able to know that when you see her. Dr. Bruce Lawrence is a professor of religious studies in, at Duke University where he pursues his research, his writing, and his teaching of Islam and what he and his colleagues call Muslim networks. And he heads up the program in Islamic studies in which both Duke and University of North Carolina Chapel Hill participate. Among his most recent books are New Faiths, Old Fears, Muslims and Other Asian Immigrants in American Religious Life, an edited and fully annotated volume entitled Messages to the World, The Statements of Osama Bin Laden, 
And most recently, in the Books That Changed the World series, he wrote The Quran, A Biography. So these are our two panelists, and I'm going to walk over and sit down and direct a question to both of them. So what I wanted to do uh, to get us started, because I hope that most of our session will be a discussion and conversation, I wanted to put a question to Bruce and to Amina um, as a way of identifying a top, some topics you want to discuss and want to discuss with the people here. I, I want to ask you a kind of preliminary, which I think means brief and provocative, uh, response to this question. What are the markers, that is the distinguishing features, that make a conversation about Islam in America different from a discussion about Islam in France, Islam in Turkey, Islam in Morocco, or Islam in the United Kingdom? So I've got about an hour. <laughs> And I can't take any more questions. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here, and I will try and answer uh, Bob's question by revisiting, for those of you who can still remember, the time that I was at Stanford giving the ACLS lectures. Uh, this was back in 1998, a mere nine years ago. And one of the lectures I gave uh, became a major chapter in this book, New Face, Old Fears, Muslims and other Asian immigrants in American religious life. And I want to answer Bob's question by saying that uh, he provoked me to revisit that book and also these lectures and thinking about the event today and thinking about this particular topic, embracing diversity. And I revisited the book because one of the things I resisted there was saying there is such a thing as Islam in America that be, can be neatly and deftly and productively compared with Islam in India, or Islam in the UK, or Islam in Turkey, or Islam in France. So in one sense, I'm going to answer Bob's question by saying, bah humbug. But I'm also going to answer it truthfully uh, and try and give a sense of what you could do to talk about Islam or Muslims. I would prefer to say Muslims in America rather than Islam in America. And the reason I prefer to say Muslims is because this entire book, New Face, Old Fears, is about why some Muslims are Asian immigrants and are not Arabs, and also not African-Americans, and why that distinction is very important. But it's equally important, I think, in terms of the topic that you're all looking at, to see that race and ethnicity shape the way we think about Muslims, especially Muslims in America, and that makes them very different than Muslims in France or the UK or Turkey or, in fact, anywhere in the world. And I want to start out by saying that, for me, the major issue is how one constructs a notion of race ethnicity that takes account of the American dilemma that we have a Pentagon. I know we have one in Washington. We have another one called the ethno-racial Pentagon, described by David Hollinger. We cannot ignore that Pentagon any more than those of us who may not like the war in Iraq can ignore what happens in the Pentagon in DC in defining that war. And so how do you both define it and oppose it or modify it in your own creative opposition? That's the question I'm raising to myself and for all of you today. And I'm going to start out with actually something that's not from a Muslim, but from an American poet. And it began my own book, 
and really, in a sense, still frames the way in which I think about it. And it goes back, actually, to this marvelous talk. I, I, actually, I haven't heard anything that I would not describe as marvelous uh, in the talks so far, but the talk last night by Gloria Ladson-Villings, where she asked the question of what about whiteness, and the frame poem for my book is this following one called Election Time, and I want to read it to you. Names will change, faces will change, but not much else. The president will still be white and male and wasps, still speak with forked tongue, still wear red, white, and blue underwear, still sleep on white sheets in a white house, still surround himself with white men, still believe that white is the best thing to be, still read all white newspapers that only talk about blacks in connection with crime, still fly in white Air Force One, still worship a white Jesus, still pray to a white God, still go on vacation, where white people lie on white sand beaches, still white out his mistakes, still throw out little white balls on opening day, still uphold the laws of dead white men, still dream about big white monuments and big white memorials, ain't nothing changed, ain't nothing changed at all. Everything else I'm going to say goes downhill from there. Uh, that was a quotation from an Amerindian poet named Lamont Steptoe, and it was about election time in the mid-90s. And so as we're sort of revving up to election time in the mid-decade of the 21st century, it's interesting to go back and reflect on that particular poem, but also the way in which it inscribes whiteness as something that cannot easily be changed, that has to be identified, but that is going to be there no matter what this Amerindian poet or others like him say. And I go on to comment on the fact that it's not only that this comes from an Amerindian poet who underscores America as above all white America, and it's not just white men who write white papers and create white monuments, it's also a white Jesus and a white God to whom white people pray. And I think it's that cultural production of whiteness that where names and faces might change, but in fact leads the poet to say in the refrain at the end, ain't nothing changed, ain't nothing changed at all. And I don't think that means resignation. It means the difficulty in posing a challenge to the message of that poem and to the structures that evoke that message. And so what I try to do in this book and I, I open up with another quotation, which is not poet, poetic, but, but could be rendered uh, by some people as a song. Uh, it goes like this, your country, how came it yours? Before the pilgrims landed, we were here. Our song, our toil, our cheer and warning have been given to this nation in blood brotherhood. Are not these gifts worth the giving? Is not this work and striving? Would America have been America without her Negro people? And those rhetorical questions, of course, are asked by W.B. Du Bois in his book, The Souls of Black Folk. And I pose this right next to the Asian-American motel owner in Mississippi, Masala. Some of you may remember that film from, from the early 90s, where this Asian-American Indian immigrant says, I'm just a white person who stayed in the sun too long. And those kind of notions of how you always are identified with whiteness or by the challenge to yourself to be defined by whiteness is what I think gives such power to this ethno-racial pentagon. And I talk about it at length in this book because I think that you have to look at power in order to challenge it and answer Bob's question, 
I want to just say that I think the most powerful possible answer to the ethno-racial Pentagon is first of all to describe it. And I haven't heard it described yet in this conference, but some of the rest of you may know this. So let me just, uh, I'm going to assume that nobody has read my book. And if you've read it, uh, maybe you won't mind my just quoting this particular set of, of, of uh, citations from it. In talking about the ethno-racial Pentagon, there is the implication that we have an equivalence among five groups that are in fact far from equivalent. Each is defined by ethno-racial markings. The Amerindian, the poet I just quoted from you, the African-American, the voice I just quoted from you, are framed along with Asian-American as freestanding categories. That is to say, they're not qualified internally, they're simply Indian, African-American, Asian. But then there's a fourth one called Anglo, but it has a subset Hispanic. So Hispanic is combined with Anglo. Or to put it differently, the reason this is called the ethno-racial pentagon instead of the racial pentagon is because there is one ethnos, a group defined as like but not quite Anglos. And these, of course, are Hispanics, again lumping together Latinos and Chicanos, though one could argue, and I have agreed with the argument elsewhere, that Latinos and Chicanos deserve to be separated, each with their own subcategory, if you're going to follow this logic of having a census that has subcategories. But then if you started to do it, and I just put this out, and I've done this, by the way, in Washington, D.C., and not simply in Palo Alto, California. I have had people who've read my book and challenged it, and I've engaged in internal critique with them. They said, but if we did this for Chicanos and Latinos, what would we do with Asian Americans? Because where else in the world except in America are Pakistanis and Japanese regarded as the same? Or how about Amerindians? Tribes as diverse as the Cherokees and Labini share little in common except that they both belong in the census category under Indians and African-Americans. Dare I say in this group about the diversity of African-Americans, which group would include multiple Caribbean as well as African family trees, but even more important, how each of them is mingled with Anglo-Americans far more than conventional wisdom or constructed categories admit. So how do you have such a thing as a Pentagon, an ethno-racial Pentagon, without saying that these neat rubrics define minorities, but they hide untidy subjects? And so what I argue in this book, and what I'm going to argue a little bit today in answering Bob's question, I am going to answer, by the way, uh, in case you, you wondered, uh, is that all of these categories make it possible for people who have to uh, create policies and also laws, uh, I could have a whole set of commentaries about the wonderful um, two speeches that proceeded on in, in, in terms of how the law, and especially Brown, frames a certain notion of racial injustice. But what all of these categories, whether it's a census or, or legal decisions do, is to round off squares, fit loose ends into a tight box. Yes, the word is Procrustean, a Procrustean move that projects the very racialized class prejudice that some of its defenders seek to remedy. And the category that I attack throughout my book and in much of my work is what I call racialized class prejudice. And what do I mean by that? It's a prejudice that tags race as the key to wholesale notions of cultural difference and then provides socioeconomic entitlement for those marked as disadvantaged. And I argue that this is something which amounts to a kind of prejudice and stereotyping that is not easily understood but can only be really countered by looking at two categories, and I look at them in my book, and I look at them in other work I've done. The first category is civil society. And I want to say that civil society is 
a critical category if we are to move beyond either state or community as the sites for citizenship. Civil society, of course, is not autonomous. It competes not only with the state and ethnic communities, but also with the family and the market. But in my opinion, civil society alone provides hope for individual initiative and collective planning among groups that advocate either critical distance from powerful institutions, whether they're juridical or executive, and also active resistance to current norms and values. And the second thing I want to say is that besides civil society, one does need to look very carefully at religion. The problem is, and here I can uh, quote um, actually some person who's uh, very well known uh, to all of you. Um, American cultural studies, says Cornell West, have been so preoccupied with our early inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis Western Europe, our frontier mentalities, our regional diversities, our shifting democratic consensus, and recently our racialized and gendered hybridities that we have overlooked the underlying American relation of markets to religion. And I wrote, when I heard Goodwin, uh, this wonderful talk by Goodwin Lille just now, uh, linking race and poverty, that this of course is what Cornell West is also doing, saying you cannot ignore the relationship of markets to religion. And to, quote, uh, to finish the quote from Cornell West, the dominant US ideology of individualism is rooted in the often ignored relation of capitalist markets to religious sentiments. In other words, you cannot talk about religion or race or any form of identity without also looking at capital, which is to say class, which is to say economics. And then to quote from David Yu, who says about Asian Americans, Asian American studies has taken up a number of subjects. This is, he's writing this about 10 years ago. Unfortunately, it's still true today, that Asian American studies has taken up a number of subjects, gender issues, diasporic perspectives, interdisciplinary cultural studies, comparative racial analysis, but, this is the big but. But amidst the growth and maturity of Asian American studies, religion and religious experience continue to suffer from relative neglect. And I would argue that today, in 2007, it's still true that religion and religious experiences of Asian Americans, Muslims and others, continue to suffer from relative neglect. And I argue that religion is the problem. It's something you have to talk about, but how do you talk about it? And I propose that you have to have two parallel but independent ways of talking about religion. And yes, I am going to tell you uh, the person on whom I depend, the source from which I borrowed this particular way of looking at religion. It's not somebody often associated with religion, and that's why I think it's valuable. Uh, his name is Emmanuel Wallerstein. He's known as the architect of the world system, which I disagree with in some respects, but he got it right, at least in my view, when he defined culture as follows. Emmanuel Wallerstein sees culture as the ideological battleground for what he calls the modern world system, but he sees culture itself as a subject of intense complexity in the 21st century. Why? Because there are two notions of culture that are, at, that are categorically distinctive, but in the popular media and alas in academic circles are often elided and therefore confused. The first this is Wallerstein now on culture. Culture as a broad brush distinction of one group from another. That is to say, culture isolates and emphasizes certain traits or characteristics said to pertain to one group, but not others. Example, Germans are not like French, are not like British. Call this culture one. The second is culture as an intramural yardstick. It distinguishes some members of a particular culture from others of that same culture. 
Berliners are not like Bavarians, Marseille is not Paris, Manchester will never be London, San Francisco will never be uh, Los Angeles, and Stanford will never be Berkeley. Oh, I think I added those last two, sorry. <clears throat> I want to make sure everybody's taking notes. Okay, so depending on location, German or French or British culture will be seen differently by capital city urbanites than by their rural counterparts. Or what appeals to different groups may have as much to do with class and gender, race and education, poverty or wealth, as with their location. And I call this culture two. Actually, Wallerstein calls this culture two. So culture one, if you will, is a macro view that once you name somebody as French, German, British, or American, you've said something everybody understands to be true of all people in that group. And culture two says, now wait a second, there's in diversity within American as well as within British or French or German. See, I'm going to answer your question, Bob. Uh, that has to be taken account of if you're going to think about those broad categories. Now, I apply this same distinction to religion, so bear me out. If you think about religion, whatever religion is, and it's many things, it's also like culture etched by concentric but not overlapping circles. The first is a notion of religion as a whole, something universal, timeless. Call it Christianity, call it Buddhism, Islam. Call it goddess worship, shamanism, magic. Each term presupposes an internal order and an external other. Sameness and difference are accounted for without contextualization. But even when there is contextualization, it's often with reference to geographic signifiers that describe rather than interpret or explain. So for instance, Western Christianity, Christianity is in the West. Eastern Buddhism, Buddhism is in the East and that worst of all, Middle Eastern Islam. Islam is between the East and the West, it's Middle Eastern. I call this religion one. But there's also another kind of religion. Religion internally differentiated. So that for instance, Christians who are urban sophisticates are not the same as Christians who are rural preliterates. Muslims from Jakarta in Indonesia are not the same as Muslims from Dakar in Senegal. Upper caste Hindus from Bombay or Mumbai are not the same as lower caste Hindus from Bengal, etc. I call this internal diversity within religious traditions religion too. And I think that when one takes categories such as the ones that we have today, thinking about race, making unmaking race, embracing diversity, the only major issue I have before I move on to talk about Muslims in America and answer Bob's question directly is that the term diversity itself doesn't do quite as much work as we'd like. And now let me acknowledge Amina Wadud. Thank you very much. I haven't said anything important. I was supposed to talk first anyway, but now I'll talk more briefly. But this is Amina. Glad to have you here. And so I'm going to uh, just uh, finish my preliminary remarks and answer Bob's question directly as I promised, uh, but you may have wondered if I'm going to keep the promise, but I will. Uh, and then we'll also hear from uh, uh, Amina Wadud, who's just arrived. Uh, no thanks to modern um, technology and transportation. Uh, I want to just say that, that the issue that is really important is that diversity itself is too broad and vague in some ways to do all the work that this conference and maybe this center is hoping it will do. And so actually, I prefer, and I say in the beginning of my book, that, I that in many ways the term polyvalence needs to be introduced. Polyvalence presupposes diversity, but unlike diversity, 
it accents not just perpetual variety and change, but also stability and persistence. If diversity is a myriad of changing forms, then polyvalence is the plumbing of depths within each form. The many are created and debated and recreated and adumbrated, and yet they retain a referential link to the memory and the hope of each immigrant group. So in my view, polyvalence is neither essentialist nor fixed. It's negotiated, it's a negotiated equivalence without a guaranteed permanence. It's pragmatic hope rather than utopian idealism. It's a value added rather than a value neutral projection of culture specific norms. So in my own copy of the wonderful advertisement and brochure for this conference, I have embracing diversity, comma, fostering polyvalence. Because I hope that that will be the outcome of this conference. Diversity, yes, but polyvalence as for Muslims and especially for Asian Muslims, a very important sequence. Now I have, and many students in this room have read a couple of the chapters in my book. For those of you who haven't, I'm not gonna review or talk about it, but I do go into depth about why civil society is important and why immigrants have a stake in civil society that goes beyond uh, government and other local institutions. And I also quote the unfortunate juridical tradition of immigrants viewed as pariahs. And I think it's really important to look at some of the language that's been used in court decisions in deciding what's fair and unfair, what's possible and impossible for immigrants. And um, I know that uh, Goodman Liu wouldn't mind if I quote uh, unfavorably one of his professors from Yale Law School, but there is a certain professor from Yale Law School who says that in fact, the whole notion that, that Muslims are, and other immigrants are pariahs is the only way that we can really understand why uh, they will never have the same final rank in American society as their Anglo-American equivalents. And of course, I'm talking about Owen Fisk. Uh, and I do discuss why I disagree with him and why this whole notion of labeling a group as pariahs immediately makes it impossible for them ever to attain the kind of social justice that um, is sometimes, and I think everyone in this room would say, should be advocated on behalf of immigrants and others. Now, the Muslim difference, because this is what Bob Gregg asked me to talk about, and Amina Wadud will talk about it in even greater detail and with a certain textual uh, engagement that I could not and would not attempt. But just about Muslims, and especially about Muslims since 9-11, I think that one of the things that is really most difficult is the fact that since 9-11, um, Muslims are first of all seen on one screen as those other Americans, and Bob Gregg was kind enough to share with me something from the Pew Research Center, a release on census taking that uh, is May of 2007, but it's not census taking by the government. It's a poll, a, a, a random sample of Muslims uh, interviewed in, in several languages, English, Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, and of course Pew says we don't claim to speak for all Muslims, but if you have to do a sense of how all Muslims who would be in a census uh, reviewed for this kind of a, a project, it would be, and this is, this is the outcome, that you would have 25% of the whole Muslim community being Arab, 25% being non-Arab, identified as Pakistan, South Asia, or Iran, and then you'd have 20% African American and 15 other. When I read this, I said, this is, this is really, bizarre, the last part, the African-American part, and, and Amina will talk more about this. First of all, the, uh, I'm just gonna pick a random figure. Some of you are saying, I don't know how many Muslims are in America, so why do I care? I'm gonna pick the number six million. 
And I can give all kinds of justifications for why that's better than 4 million or 10 million. But you pick your own number. But whatever number it is, 4, 10, or the one I prefer, 6 million, if you think about 6 million Muslims in America, and that's the group that Bob wanted me to talk about, I am going to answer his question. If you think about 6 million Muslims in America, that's not very large minority group in a population of 280 million. But what's even more interesting is that 6 million, which is very much a minority, has within it internal diversity, what I would call religion too. Diversity is very important because Arab Muslims are not the same as South Asian Muslims are not the same as African American Muslims at one level. And yet here they are all talked about together. And African American Muslims are talked about as if they're only 20% of six million, which would mean there are only one and a quarter million African American Muslims in America. You know, I, I just have a hard time imagining that I haven't met all of them. I mean, I think that I know within my own range of experience many, many Muslims, African American Muslims, who represent larger communities. And so this is, this is supposed to be, I mean, Pew, it's supposed to be a, you know, a good research center and it's supposed to do reputable, quote unquote, objective work. But I think this is a hugely biased survey. I think it's biased in two ways. The first way is that it gives a proportionality which separates foreign-born Muslims and native-born Muslims as if they're all obviously distinct subsets, as if all foreign-born Muslims, Arabs and non-Arabs, fit in one category. They just happen to be from different parts of the Arab world. So for instance, I'm not going to get off on this too long, but let me just get off on it a little bit. Arab region. I read that and I say, what do they mean by Arab region? They mean Morocco through Iraq. Now, I've been to all those countries. They're not the same country. Do you think San Francisco and LA are the same cities? Don't answer that. But you know, if you do, and you can make that argument, then you can make the argument there's an Arab region where if you're a Muslim from Morocco or you're a Muslim from Iraq, you're the same person. Because that's what you are in this kind of a census or this kind of a survey. So I object to that kind of thing, but then I object to the other one, which is not defined here, that simply says native-born Muslims are African-American and other. Well, I know there are some Amerindian Muslims. That's one category that's possible. I know there's some Anglo-Muslims that's possible. I know there's some Hispanic Muslims that are possible, but no way in God's green or brown, because we're having a drought, green or brown earth, can I imagine that there are almost as many other native-born Muslims as there are African-American Muslims. And by the way, native-born also leaves out a part of the history which says they were brought over here against their will, most of these native-born Muslims. So it's those, these kind of categories which kind of slip into our ordinary way of thinking themselves have to be challenged and I think that, that only when we do that can we begin to understand larger complexities. And finally, I want to say uh, in answer to Bob's question that the biggest problem with making a comparison between Muslims, not Islam, but Muslim and the Muslim community in America with France or with Great Britain or with Turkey or Germany or any place you want to pick uh, where there are immigrant Muslims, the greatest difficulty is that in America South Asian Muslims are often framed with other South Asian non-Muslims, specifically Hindus and Sikhs. And I could say much more about this, but I just want to make one point about the, the American difference that puts all of South Asians, Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs together. And I want to let everybody know that I'm quoting from another Amina. Uh, there's only one uh, Amina would do it, but there is another Amina. And her name is Amina Muhammad Arif. And she is also a cultural critic, and she's written a marvelous essay that came out in the October 2007 issue of uh, South Asia, in which she describes the paradox of religion, I'm quoting the title of her article, the paradox of religion 
the reconstruction of Hindu and Muslim identities among South Asian immigrants in the United States. And what essentially she argues is since 2001, Muslims have been separated from others, not only by the American census, not only by the FBI, not only by all the procedures you've read about in, 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 in the news media, but also because of a very strong campaign by certain Indians who are non-Muslims, specifically Hindutva, have a very, if I can call it this, a Hindu nation first identity, which says that India should be only Hindus and all those other people just sort of slipped in and now they have to be slipped out, mainly expelled or taken care of by other means. So this whole notion that there is a kind of Hindu first or Hindu purity movement in America has influenced the way in which some South Asian Muslims are also considered here. And that has gone on in a, in a, in a process that is um, much too complex to describe here. But the result has been that Hindu and Muslim become markers of religious identity over against cultural identity. So this is where my, my effort to separate culture one, culture two, religion one, religion two is very important because these movements of the Hindu right, if I can call it that, which try and make all Muslims foreigners, whether they're foreigners in India or foreigners in, in the United States, is, is, has as its presumption that religion makes all Muslims Arabs. That all Muslims are basically Arabs and therefore, even if they know Urdu or Persian, even if they participate in mushayra, which are uh, recitations of poetry in public, uh, even if they like music like Qawwali, uh, I don't know how many of you know about Nusrat Fatali Khan, but you know, wonderful sense of public um, performance in South Asian culture that is shared among Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs is looked on as something that really only the Hindus understand and Muslims shouldn't be part of it. So this whole idea to, to erase culture and substitute religious identity is something that has happened, unfortunately, um, with uh, too much success since 2001. So to answer Bob's question, and then uh, turn it over to Amina Wadud and Bob can restate my answer. I'll sit down so he can do it without my uh, blushing. Uh, the last thing I want to say is that the difference of America is that there are immigrants here who are voluntary immigrants, uh, so that in one sense the difference between the South Asian and the African American Muslim community is that most of the South Asians wanted to come here, although they did so for economic reasons that uh, often put them in peril otherwise. At the same time, that you have many smaller minority communities of Muslims in America than you have in Britain, France, or Germany. And ironically, what you don't have in Britain, France, or Germany is an indigenous Muslim community with whom they interact. So I would say the largest difference in response to Bob Gregg's very um, evocative initial question is it's not only that Islam is, is the reference that should be qualified, it should be the Muslim community that's compared, but also the Muslim communities of the United States are much more internally diverse than their counterparts in Germany, France, I'll also add Belgium, Holland, by the way, throw in Belgium, Holland, where they're also major Muslim minorities, as well as the UK, but the key difference in that diversity is they do not have, in any of those countries, an indigenous Muslim cohort with whom they interact. So this is an American difference that I think is, is very important and needs to be kept in mind when we talk about the subject of Muslims uh, in the United States. Thank you.
I've learned that Amina has gotten the drift of Bruce Lawrence's comments, so I'm going to ask her to either stay where she is or come up here to talk about um, her, the points she would like to make about uh, Muslims in America and race and ethnicity. We should congratulate her for being so unflapped, uh, having been in airports and cars. I begin, as always, in the name of Allah. Thank you very much. Uh, this time, it wasn't a, a security breach that caused me to uh, be delayed, so I can be thankful for that because uh, I've been delayed enough times uh, for uh, looking the part. Uh, but uh, actually, I um, was at another program this week at Humboldt State University on race, ethnicity, uh, and religion, and particularly they also chose Islam, and nobody told me that uh, when you go up to one of these little, you know, towns that uh, you sometimes don't get to get your plane landed in San Francisco if they don't allow you, so actually I fl flew over the campus twice. <laughs> yeah, you guys were getting ready and I was trying to get here, so I do apologize for that because that's, uh, that's not my norm. I don't believe in uh, fashionably late. Um, there's just a couple comments uh, that I want to make. I've been given 15 minutes, uh, and he asked me if I wanted to sit down. I, I hope that's not a gender remark, but uh, as the uh, official uh, lady imam and the daughter of a minister, I definitely will stand, so thank you very much. Um, I um, uh, uncomfortably decided that I would read the Pew Report uh, also from page to page, and uh, I tried not to... Um, you know, say comments out loud on the airplane or in the airport or in my house. Uh, so thank you, uh, Bruce, already for taking it to task. Um, I also feel that I'm obligated to start at the point of uh, the greatest inspiration for me and then to um, address uh, the failure of that inspiration to be uh, implemented in the context of uh, what is Islam in America, what is Muslim American or American Muslim. The Quran says, O oh, you who have attained to faith, no men shall deride other men, and no women shall deride other women. It may well be that those whom they deride are better than themselves. Be conscious of Allah. O oh, humankind, behold, we have created you all out of a male and a female, and have made you into nations and tribes so that you may come to know one another. Verily, the most noble of you, the most noble of you in the sight of Allah is the one with the greatest taqwa or moral consciousness. Um, this is um, an inspiration for uh, many people from um, African slave ancestry to uh, engage with Islam uh, that is, that there is a promise and a mandate for social justice, um, particularly uh, non-distinctions for reasons of race, but rather uh, race or ethnicity, but rather that race and ethnicity are one of the features of human communities that is a feature that we um, anticipate, according to this verse, that will be used as a way to come to know one another. Um, and. Um, in the context of the U.S., um, we have uh, the, uh, uh, you know, Bruce took it from me. I'm sort of ashamed that a white man took my point, but uh, the point is that we, um, we have this um, uh, thing that I call, um, you know, Muslim by choice, American by force. 
And um, I actually said this in a conference in Qatar uh, with U.S. Islamic Forum, and uh, some white guy told me that uh, nobody is American by force. And I said, well, I guess he never read anything about slavery. Um, I can't imagine why that would be so, but I have looked at the textbooks and standard uh, public education here. Um, and uh, 400 years ago, some people give estimates as many as one-third of the population of people who came here were Muslims. Uh, coincidentally, last year I learned that one of them was my ancestor. Uh, and I'm still trying to recover from this uh, simply because um, I have given all of my position to my choice uh, as a Muslim and uh, my legacy from my uh, father as a minister who at least raised me with a kind of moral consciousness that's, that's you know, related to one's spiritual aspirations and one's notion of the sacred. Um, and then I learned that from my mother's side that my first ancestor, whose name was Matt, which uh, actually is an abbreviation from Muhammad, uh, was born of Moorish ancestor, which would be African, Arab, and Berber, and that it goes all the way back to one century after the Prophet. So it has uh, sent me into a little bit of an exorcist. I'm trying to reclaim this right to choose Islam, which I still feel is the highest honor uh, from the idea that I actually have it in my bloodline. Um, but Roots showed us that that existed, that movie Roots, it showed us that that existed. Um, What's interesting is because obviously I have an extensive family. I mean, my mother was one of eight and my father was one of 11 or so kids. And uh, nobody else cares, you see. So when we saw Roots, we don't seem to care about the fact that Islam was already here 400 years ago when 100 years ago or so uh, Muslims or people from these areas, South Asia and the Arabic-speaking world, not all of them necessarily Muslim, and many of them not even concerned about their Islamic identity, uh, began voluntarily to come to the United States. And the reason that they came, and the Pew Report does hold out, has to do with everything that has to do with material success, better education, better jobs, uh, until the last uh, 15 years or so when people actually came because they were being persecuted for their practices as Muslims. So we have a movement that for about 80 years was all about the Benjamins. So um, in this sense, the experience of immigrants in America who coincidentally happened to be Muslim is no different from the experience of immigrants in America who coincidentally happened not to be Muslims. That is, they came for the white American dream. Uh, this is pretty easily borne out if you watch where they live, uh, where they do their businesses, how they do their businesses, and how easily they inscribe to, to thoughts of white supremacy. In fact, some of them will identify on censors, and the Pew Report also shows this out, as being white. Now, um, interestingly enough, if we compare what happens in the U.S. from countries in Western Europe, uh, it's not so easy for them to uh, claim to be white, uh, Tariq Ramadan uh, aside, to, on being a European Muslim. Uh, it's not so easy for them to claim to be white because the European identity within its own diversity, you know, Belgium and um, uh, uh, Spanish and Italian, the European identity has its history and legacy so that their immigrant movement among Muslim peoples from various uh, areas, North Africa and South Asia, um, are um, an ethnic identity of a certain clarity, and they are pretty consistent in terms of othering 
uh, ethnic identities that come from Africa or the Arabic world or the South Asian world. Um, and um, what happens also is that they tend to cluster living arrangements in ghettos, that is that, you know, they all live together and so they have a kind of subculture uh, within Europe. Well, in America we've got this thing that, again, any African-American can tell you didn't work, it's called the melting pot. Um, some of us just don't melt into that pot. But uh, immigrants who come to this country um, have uh, a really uh, vested interest in melting as quickly as possible, which is actually what the Pew Report is trying to uh, show, how mainstream uh, and how moderate they are. In other words, how much they fit into the dominant white culture and the dominant uh, white uh, ideals and, um, and um, aspirations. Um, and if there is a distinction between them with regard to those dominant ideas, these are whitewashed, pun intended, uh, these are whitewashed to show that it has something to do uh, with some particular situation that has in some way or another uh, disenfranchised them. Um, and that's why it is that when the Pew Reports deals with anything that has to do with African American Muslims, um, there's no way to be able to actually gauge um, what is their sample and what is the um, understanding that uh, these African Americans will have with regard to certain issues. Uh, I think about the uh, indication that um, more African Americans are more likely to support Al-Qaeda. Well, I am African American, just in case it's not clear, but um, I also know a lot of African Americans and um, the extent to which they know about Al-Qaeda is about average to the rest of the American population. They don't know, except they know that after 400 years in the United States, the possibility of actually gaining what you would consider to be this mainstream, i.e. white middle class uh, status, is uh, so elusive that there is a much more subversive uh, notion, especially among those who voluntarily accept Islam or um, eventually find out that they descended from Muslims uh, and also accept voluntarily to uh, orient their lives that way. And so they're looking for anybody who has the guts to be able to stand up for the U.S. It doesn't matter that, of course, we obliterated uh, you know, the entire country of Afghanistan afterwards, but there is some pride that somebody stands up against you know, the number one super bully of the world. And so when they say that African Americans are in favor of Al-Qaeda, it's not because they want the Buddha statues to be uh, blown up or because they want women to be denied uh, opportunities for education and health care and mobility. It's just because they want to be able to see somebody stand up to the U.S. because even within the U.S. we are refugees. Uh, we're third world people within our own country. Uh, and one of the points about our conversions to Islam, our voluntarily choosing to accept Islam, is that we were actually looking for something that both allows us to retain a spiritual orientation, which has been very important to people of African descent, uh, the very uh, well-educated uh, aside, because well-educated people don't like to admit to any religiosity because it's seen as suspicious or superstitious, but the majority of African people really feel that there is some relationship between us and the rest of the universe uh, through the earth, through fetishes, or through some notion of God or gods or goddesses. 
Um, and so Islam was actually one of the first and strongest articulations of an alternative to American mainstream culture that had a spiritual component with it. Only after African Americans uh, came to Islam in very large numbers, and that includes the nation of Islam for whatever uh, reasons of its differences of dogma, um, that uh, only after that did uh, African Americans also become things like Buddhist or Hindu or even uh, Sanarista or um, other traditional religions from other areas. So Islam was one of the first doors that allowed uh, us to both resist the um, second class status of citizenship here in the United States and to claim some type of spiritual orientation. Uh, and that's why it is, as Bruce said, you know, if the numbers that the Pew Report gives are true, then I must have seen all of them, and I must have seen all of them in the last three days. Um, so there is um, a, a careful, I have another set of percentages, which is the one that I use, that basically says that African Americans form 42% of the entire Muslim population in the United States. Uh, I'm not going to say why the Pew Report didn't want to deal with those numbers, but I am going to say that um, when I accepted Islam in 1972, um, they told us that, that there were about 2 million Muslims. And uh, so I was not surprised that, uh, you know, 35 years later that the Pew Report is still saying the same number, even though I've watched uh, tangential uh, ex expansion of Muslims in many different ways since uh, 1972. Um, but I want to um, stress a point that is uh, a little bit more to my liking. It's um, something inspired from uh, Audre Lorde's essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And she says, advocating mere tolerance of difference is the grossest reformism. It is not a total denial I'm sorry, hold on a second. The contact lenses are failing me. Okay. Differences must not be merely tolerated. It is not the total denial of the creative function of differences in our lives. Differences must not be merely tolerated, but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark, a dialectic. Only then does the necessity of interdependency become unthreatening and only within that interdependency of different strengths, acknowledged and equal, can the power to seek new ways of being in the world generate, as well as the courage and sustenance to act where there are no charters. This. Um, notion is what happens with the Quranic passage that I began with at the beginning. <clears throat> the differences are supposed to be celebrated and um, we have a problem with the assimilationist model that is being advocated. I have a problem with the assimilationist model that's being advocated by the Pew Report because it says that um, if we all just do the right thing, go to the right schools, live in the right neighborhoods, which basically means as close to white uh, as possible, then we're all going to um, be uh, good little boys and girls and um, our opportunities are going to be equal to uh, everybody else's and after 400 years, it's clear that that um, is a lie. Um, opportunities are not equal. 
Uh, Malcolm X says, for example, 400 years of black blood and sweat invested in America and the white man still has a black man begging for, every, for, for what every immigrant fresh off the ship can take for granted in the minute he walks down the gang plates. Um, there is sometimes a certain kind of animosity between African Americans and immigrants because of the experiences of immigrants within our communities, the black communities that is, and that is that immigrants can use the black community as a springboard uh, for them to get out, and when they get out there's a lot of disdain. Uh, and uh, the disdain sometimes is even palatable when you uh, see them operating in their little stores and uh, gas stations. Uh, uh, my favorite thing is the percentages of Muslim Americans, South Asian and Arab origin, who run the liquor stores. Uh, and uh, they're the first ones I met. I mean, I'll let you know I'm a closet smoker. I'm still trying to, you know, get it together that I'd rather not smoke. But I, I do smoke cigarettes, uh, just in case you think it's something else. Um, and um, so, uh, yeah, I don't smoke the other stuff anymore, but I do smoke. Uh, and um, so um, where, where I live, which is near Mount Diablo, um, the first uh, Muslims that I met were uh, immigrant Muslims uh, and also some South Asians who are not uh, immigrants, like a Sikh, for example. And uh, they, they had the liquor stores, and the stores that sell all of the smoking paraphernalia for the other stuff, as well as the cigarettes. So I would go into these stores, and it's funny. I mean, I went into stores in Ramadan, and they have the Quran playing, or they have Urdu music playing, or whatever the heck it is, you know. And uh, I watch them, because uh, when I come in, I'm, I'm dressed like this, which is a sort of an eclectic combination of my African and my Muslim uh, heritage. And, uh, you know, they treat me okay. I mean, I pay money, I don't buy the alcohol or the other smoking paraphernalia. Uh, but I watch very carefully how they treat other people that come in there. Blacks who come in there already in a state of semi-drunkenness uh, and, uh, you know, or come in high and they just want to buy a bag of potato chips because you know what happens when you do that other thing, you know. And I watch how they treat them. And uh, so my concern is that in looking at the picture of Islam in America, um, there is not yet um, a serious dialogue between the, complacent, the complicity between uh, immigrants as immigrants, Muslim or not, and white supremacy and uh, African-Americans, those who have been in this country for a considerable period of time, Muslim or not Muslim, and what the dynamic of that relationship should be. That's what distinguishes us from all the countries in Europe that, as uh, Bruce uh, also, as I said, he took it, uh, so I can't say it first. Um, there is an Islam that already existed in this country when immigrants came. There was no Islam that existed in France or Belgium um, or, or um, Moro um, not Morocco, or Spain, or Italy, uh, when Muslims started to immigrate there. So the name and the face of uh, Islam has something to do with the cultures that came there. The name and the face of Islam in America has to reflect what I call radical pluralism, and I sort of like his term as well, I'm going to investigate it, but for the moment I've been working on radical pluralism because I don't like the notion of tolerance. I'm uh, with R.G. Lord with regard to that. Tolerance in America usually means we tolerate you for as long as it takes for you to turn over to our attitude and then everything is just fine and dandy. And how do we remain distinct and how do we also um, and this is the problem uh, that I see in terms of dealing uh, with these uh, multi-valid uh, issues. How do we also maintain the integrity of our multiple identities? 
I am not just Muslim. I am not just black. I'm not just female. Uh, I'm not just um, the mother of five children. Uh, I am all these things combined. And at some point or another, one of these things has to be sacrificed in order to make what I say or do palatable under that rubric of tolerance. Um, and I don't want to have to make that sacrifice. I'd like to be all of my multiple identities at once. And this is something that I find uh, that I'm still working out with a number of people in the context of what it means to be Muslim and in America. Thank you. Am I correct that uh, we have about 10 minutes for discussion, 10 or 12 minutes? A special privilege of making an observation or asking a question belongs to people currently taking a course called CSRE 11. I know who you are. I've seen your faces. <laughs> question? Comment? Observation? Scholars? Yes. You're not in that class, are you? <laughs> okay, just just like, <laughs> huh? Do we have someone? Yes, please. Thank you both for your presentations. I wanted to ask about um, moments of historical solidarity within the U.S. of um, different Muslim in America communities, um, and not just with regard to post 9/11 period but earlier moments. So, um, uh, Sister Wadud, you spoke about, um, and I was, so, I was so grateful that you actually, because this is something I overlook a lot, and I, I appreciated you really pointing to the tensions, because if you don't actually talk about the reality of the tensions, then the work never gets done. It's sort of like we just gloss over it. We're all people of color, happy singing together, and that's not actually how it looks. But I am actually interested in hearing also a little bit about um, the things that happened that drew you to this community and allowed you to make this really profound choice that you shared with us, this really, um, you know, I found really spiritually inspiring kind of way. There, there must have been something else besides the observation of the liquor store. There must have been some other stuff also. And so I, I, I just, I wanted to hear that because I know in my own political organizing, um, what I try to, I don't even know how to put it, I'm surrounded by Muslims in America who are not African-American who identify as people of color and have very radical anti-racist, pro-justice politics. So I'm just trying to figure out how we do both at the same time. Um, is this doing anything? Okay. Um, uh, I am uh, not only surrounded by uh, Muslims of various immigrant backgrounds who similarly are anti-racist, I'm also surrounded by white Muslims who are very anti-racist. Um, I am actually pleasantly surprised after 35 years 
because I think I gave up on white people altogether until uh, I saw white Muslims who were so much more conscious about any uh, racial discrepancies than even, you know, I, little black girl from Maryland, you know, was paying attention to. Um, and so I do see Islam sometimes as a common denominator. But the thing is that that denominator is then going to be divided by a number of things. And um, uh, class is a major uh, one of those things, as is education, especially education for the sake of being able to gain class. Um, and uh, those people who have uh, attained a certain class level and also sustained a certain kind of consciousness um, are uh, still in the minority um, because the reason why they are co-opted into you know, the mainstream kind of consumerist mentality <clears throat> is because they want to make it, and the terms of making it are, you know, basically very uh, white mainstream consumers kind of making it. Um, and so, unfortunately, I know a minority of people of uh, various um, immigrant backgrounds, once they come to this country, who maintain it. But having lived with Muslims in other countries, uh, Southeast Asian uh, in particular, um, there's a clarity um, that there is a non-compliance with regard to mainstream America. I don't know what happens when they get over here. I have been trying to figure it out, and sometimes the best way for me to figure it out is to leave here again because I just get so um, exhausted. Um, but um, I think that um, there is, um, unfortunately, uh, more schism since 911 uh, than there has been um, more um, banding together. Uh, some of the banding together is very superficial. Um, you know, organizations that have been all uh, immigrant Muslims have taken in the token white or black uh, leader, uh, which is the sort of the Uncle Tom on the string thing. And I just sit and watch and see how long it's going to last because they're not equally respected intellectually as contributors or agents, but they're subjects of the fronting that is we are, uh, you know, can't we all get along kind of thing. Um, I find that those people who have a cause, they have an issue, and the issues for me are what come under the rubric of social justice. Um, those people who come together under the issue of spirituality and social justice, um, they can transcend even their religious differences, let alone their um, ethnic, ethnic differences. Um, and so that is the group of people that I can see where I have the greatest feeling of camaraderie and it doesn't matter if they're white or immigrant or black. And that those people who are not interested in social justice issues, even if they're black, for example, I don't find that I have the same commonality with them, even if they're Muslim. Muslim and black, but no social justice linked with spirituality. And sometimes spirituality becomes an escape. There's like a very new movement of spirituality as a way not to deal with issues of social justice. Um, and uh, a certain level of activism to me is an essential component of spirituality. So that's also a place where I find that, you know, I'm not uh, as easily um, uh, able to work in cooperation. I have to work on those issues that we will share. In other words, I can go there for, you know, some spiritual uh, uh, uplifting, some, you know, make you feel good stuff, and then I got to go out and I've got to deal with the issues. So um, I, I think it's a question of um, direction. There are many directions that people take. If they're taking a direction that says, um, I think as Malcolm said, um, that the mandate 
for the establishment of human rights is a mandate that was given by God. Um, and that people who can take that perspective, that is their spirituality, whether it be God or some other notion of the sacred, but their spirituality is an aspect of social justice, then they can transcend some of those arbitrary barriers of class or of race or ethnicity, even of religion, because the mandate is that their spiritual orientation becomes um, uh, a main uh, ingredient in their activism politically um, in the context of the U.S. Let me just give a much uh, briefer, slightly different answer to the question of uh, how this affects us and how we came to where we are. Actually, uh, one of the groups with which I found myself most in com making common cause in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina, is uh, people who work in the prison ministry and actually Brother Oliver Muhammad, um, who's, who's a, um, a member of the W.D. Muhammad community, uh, got in touch with me after one of my books and said, you know, you've got to come out and talk to some of the brothers in prison. And I said, really? I said, you, I said, you know I'm not a Muslim. He said, yeah, that's what's going to make it so good because we have crossovers there too. Uh, so what's really interesting, and obviously I'm a white guy and he is African American, but he said, you know, uh, your message uh, resonates with me and some people in my community and, and I have to work in the prison. So... It's really been interesting to hear the conversation from behind bars about what's going on in post-9-11 America. And, and, I, and that's something which I think, um, again, uh, to uh, echo what um, Amina said, if you, if you just simply um, look only at uh, the superficial notion of tolerance, you don't get very far in terms of seeing a vision of social justice. And it does look different from behind bars. But the one thing that's common is a thirst an extraordinary thirst for understanding, uh, and I could share many aspects of it to you, with you, but one I think that's most impressive is uh, when you read the Quran, you notice how Amin Abayam with the Quran, um, it's amazing how uh, one surah comes up a lot in prison, and it's surah to Yusuf because he's the prisoner prophet. And I'll let that one hang. Our time has run out, I'm sorry to say. Uh, let us thank our, am I right, Hazel, you're looking worried. Five more minutes. Our time has not run out. All right, you better compete okay. for that five minutes. <laughs> Please. Thank you. Yes, we uh, at my university recently had a uh, uh, conference on uh, Arab American identities after 9/11, and one of the uh, things that was being debated was the whole sort of racialization thesis as it applied to Arab Americans. And I'm wondering, um, Dr. Lawrence, your comment about how the uh, sort of de facto separ or the separation, continued separation of, of Muslims in the United States to sort of associate them as, as being sort of de facto Arabs. I'm wondering if, if you and some of the other, uh, if the other panelists would like to comment on this notion of, you know, is there sort of a, uh, how does, how does the, the Muslim population sort of tie into this idea of, of racialization? I mean, do you see this as something that is happening to Muslims in the United States or is it really sort of contoured along certain lines where some are and some are not? Or? Well, uh, I think uh, I'm going to would also have a lot to say about that. And my my own observation is that the it's it's a very convenient half truth. I mean, there are Arab Americans, and there are Arab Americans who are Muslims. There are also some Arab Americans who are not Muslim. But since those who were most directly linked to the 11 September 2001 tragedy are identified as Arab Muslims, it becomes a certain 
quick science that many people make of connecting all Muslims as Arabs and Arab Muslims as being the enemy of America. Um, curious enough, and I think this is one thing that's very important to say, is that uh, I've been contacted by a lot of people from Washington, D.C. about my views on this question. <clears throat> I will not say the people that I have come to think are not only the enemy, um, but if these are people protecting us, we have got no cover. Um, but there are also some other people that really surprised me, um, and they're within the FBI, are actually trying to find a better way of doing their job. They, they have to do the job that they're uh, paid to do, they're supposed to do, um, and that you know, they're held accountable for doing. But it's, I've been pleasantly surprised, let me say, by the FBI, and I will not mention the other groups which have given me a, the opposite surprise, uh, but you can put the names, and I won't say yes or no, but you probably know who I'm talking about. Um, and they are really trying very hard to say, well, how, how do we think about it? And I've actually had one simple thing which uh, I'm giving credit for. They actually call it the Lawrence Rule within the FBI counterterrorism. Is that people have family in America, they're probably not going to be terrorists. And it's a really amazing rule. Think about all the people who have come over here various ways. But if they have family in America, and you have various ways you can do it, there are a whole range, and some of them are Arabs and some of them are not Arabs, but, but having a stake, as it were, across generations or more than simply... Uh, an individual coming to study or an individual on a trip or an individual in business. But if you have people who have a community, a sense of community that begins with their family, is not limited to it, but goes out through this thing we call the United States, then this so-called notion that they're all Arabs and they're all Arab Muslims and they're all want to be or about to be terrorists um, is, really up, uh, is, is really up for grabs and disputable. So I think there are ways in which practical people who aren't intellectuals, aren't academics, want straight answers of who are the Arabs, who are the Arab Muslims, are they for us or against us? How do we know? Uh, there are ways you can answer those questions, and there are some people in Washington um, trying to answer them.
for common identity, whether you're Moroccan or Libyan or Palestinian? Well, I have, I have a uh, number. First of all, thank you for the observation. And you're actually the oldest student who's responded to Professor Gregg's uh, <laughs> challenge. But uh, thank you for being, you know, ahead of your class outside of it. Um, I know he does it. You know, he does it to me too, and I always try to answer as well. But let me just say, in serious, this this question is that there, there, and, and uh, I'm going to refer to this idea. That there's there are certain notions of an ideal identity. One peop, uh, one of the ways in which it's described by a um, actually, a Senegalese philosopher who now teaches at Columbia was at Northwestern, um, uh, uh, Suleiman Bashir Diang, is he talks about horizontal and vertical notions of identity. And what you've done is combine the two. In other words, the Pew Report is talking about if an observational identity that says, okay, if you look at all these people, this is who they are. And it doesn't, it doesn't make any differentiation about what, what are different ways of, of being Muslim. And that, and that one article that I read from the other Amina says, wait a minute, there are also Muslims who like to think about the notion of um, a darga, a, a Sufi master, and they like to hear qawali. Does that mean that they're not Muslims? Well, some Muslims would say yes, some people would say no. But that whole identity, which is a vertical identity, gets left out when you do simply a horizontal identity. So the Pew survey is a horizontal identity, trying to count bodies, whether you're doing a survey or a census. And the kind of vertical identity, which is maybe what the universal school is looking for, says, oh, there is something greater beyond our differences that combines us all. And there, by the way, it's not only there. there I could cite many other places uh, in the United States where there are Muslim, but also uh, other schools, not Muslim schools, that also reach for a universal identity that goes beyond cultural, racial, ethnic, linguistic, and even class or economic differences. But I would say that there's, it's, it's still very, very important when you do something like the Pew Survey does that talks about differences that you're more accurate about differences, and as Ahmed has said, and I complete, where they ever got the notion that there are so few African-American Muslims and that they get erased and not just reduced, but erased as, a, as an important group along with others. I think that's, that's enough of a serious challenge that one has to say, how come? How did those 55,000 interviews produce these 1,000 answers, and why do they represent all Muslims in America? So I think that horizontal identity, which is not the vertical answer that you're looking for and what the universal school teaches has to be identified and that's what I tried to do. Um, I just want to make a, a comment about the relationship between um, the universal and the conservative. Um, the, um, the main center of activity for Muslims uh, in America is still the mosque and uh, for reasons that still astound me. Uh, the mosques in America are uh, predominantly very, very conservative. Um, and they promote a practice and a perception and a perspective on Islam that um, I would say very few of them sustain when they walk outside of the door of that mosque. Um, and um, I say this because when you talk about, you know, and I'm not familiar with the particular school you referred to, uh, you know, with the universal uh, notions, um, and it only causes me to wonder why is it problematic if an Arab or a Muslim, an Arab and a Muslim, or anybody else uh, and Muslim decides that it wants to focus on the universal as opposed to on the particulars? Why is that problematic at all, and why aren't we picking out, uh, you know, the Christian right or uh, you know, Mormons or, you know, the Jewish left or whatever, and why is it that if uh, someone who 
identifies, and somebody asked me this last month when I was doing something else in San Francisco, you know, why if you have such a universalist perspective on X, Y, or Z, do you still identify with being Muslim? What is the problem with being Muslim and also being universal, and why is the notion that to be Muslim you must only be conservative? And it has something to do with this public-private divide, this sort of uh, you know, post-enlightenment notion that relegates religion to the private sphere, and as such it allows for irrationality and intolerance uh, gender discrimination and all other kinds of things and all that's okay because well that's religion we don't do anything with it but in the public space what we want is we want certain civil liberties we want to have those respected etc cetera, etc cetera. and the ability to be able to see at least according to the Islamic view that it is a way of life that actually these two things are supposed to be better integrated and therefore in fact there is a mandate to operationalize the best of the principles um, of our faith in the context of everyone, not just of other Muslims. Um, and so I'm still concerned that we keep this kind of uh, conservative uh, practice, uh, personalizing uh, of the religion, and then everything else that we do, you know, literally we're selling liquor in a liquor store and, and, and alcohol is prohibited. So I'm, I'm concerned about this notion that universal means everything that is mainstream in America and that um, religious in the context of Islam means everything that is absolutely untenable in the context of America. So we just do it on Fridays in the mosque. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about the particular school you refer to, but it just brought to mind certain ideas with me with regard to conservative versus universal, private versus public uh, in terms of the discourse on religion and values. Please join me in thanking Dr. Wadud and Dr. Lawrence. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.